Now, folks, uh, tonight we are doing something a little different that I don't do much uh, on Wednesday nights. But you know what tomorrow is, right? What's tomorrow? Reformation Day. Uh, and what does Reformation Day stand for? Martin Luther put the tree that is here, whatever, up on the Wittenberg doors. The 95 Theses. Uh, October 31st, what was the year? What was the year? 15 what? No, that's the year he was ordained a monk. So you got that part right. I mean, you're on the right train of thought. 1517. Oh, look at him. <laughs> Drew's cheating. <laughs> there are some up. Randy, you need one? Okay. You need another? Okay. Who does not have a listening guide? You're going to, okay, pass some of these out. And here you go, Eddie. I've got a few more. <laughs> now, uh, folks, good to see Jeff here tonight. He has passed along a DVD to me on Martin Luther, the life of Martin Luther, put out by uh, public television. Yes. So that's a good DVD to see. Uh, you've seen that? Okay. Okay. I wish they wouldn't have had a, a Catholic priest, um, the Cardinal Timothy Dolan in New York. He narrates a lot of that one. So anyway... I think they could have done maybe better by not doing that. But anyway, still very good uh, DVD. And it kind of is a reenactment of some things. So um, you can go online, I'm sure, at public television and order a copy of that. Tonight, what I want us to see, we're going to see about 45 or 50 minutes of a documentary that has been put together by Ligonier, by Stephen Nichols and some others there fantastic documentary that's coming out and in fact you can actually go on YouTube right now and watch the entire thing for free they're making it free for a limited amount of time if you go to the Ligonier page on YouTube and it's an hour and 32 minutes long and I want us to see some of that tonight and as you do, I, I put together a little listening guide. Let's just go over that quickly. Uh, just help you be listening for some things as we go along. How Luther lit the match that started the Protestant Reformation. He was the son of a father who was in the mining business who desired his son Martin to become a lawyer. Young Martin was in a terrible storm, feared for his life. He cried out, St. Anne, who was the patron saint of minors in Catholic thought. Uh, help me and I will become a monk. He was saved from the storm and he did indeed become a monk in 1507 in the Augustinian order. His father was quite displeased because again he wanted his son to be a lawyer and help him in the mining business with some legal disputes. Luther was quite fearful of God. He had an enormous sense of guilt over his sin. 
He simply could not see how he could be justified when he would enter the confessional booth. He would wear out the priest listening to his confessions. He would sometimes go on and on for hours in confession only to stop and then hurry back in to confess more when the least little things came to his mind. He would torture himself with long periods of fasting, prayer, and freezing himself, hoping somehow to appease God and earn forgiveness. He journeyed to Rome in 1510. This was an empty experience for him. He was quite put off by what he saw in the church and among Rome's citizens. He did not see interest in God or the things of God. Even among the priests, he noticed careless and thoughtless attention to their work and ministry, and he noticed rampant immorality among them. Uh, quite common for the priests to seek out prostitutes. Uh, they would sell the mass, and they would repeat it as quickly as they possibly could, saying it as fast as they possibly could, so they could get more um, mass services in in a given day and they could make more money. Uh, when John Tetzel, a Dominican friar, was appointed to sell indulgences for the building of St. Peter's in Rome, this outraged Luther. In Catholic thought, one goes to purgatory upon death to finish paying for one's sins. Purgatory was believed to be a place where final purification is accomplished. Tetzel was preaching with great effectiveness, I mean the effectiveness of a used car salesman, uh, that for an offering you could reduce the time your loved ones spend in purgatory. When the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Eddie, your poor mama. She loves you, doesn't she? Let's, let's, say, let's say she's passed away. She loves you, right? You probably gave her a hard time growing up. Your, your poor mama in purgatory suffering. Don't you think it would be the right thing to do for you to reduce 10,000, 20,000 years of her time in purgatory? Don't you think that'd be right? Here, give me an offering. So that's some of what Tetzel was doing. Uh, the scriptures had all but been lost to the average parishioner. Reading and writing abilities were low. The scripture was often not in the language of the people. Thus, all the average man could do is trust in what the church told him. This was a situation setting up great abuse. When Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church at Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, he was not doing violence to the church. He wasn't just trying to put holes in the church door. The university church door was where postings would be nailed announcing matters of concern. The fact that Luther wrote the theses in Latin was indicative that Luther did not intend for this to be for public consumption. He assumed, no doubt, that this would be for the academic community to see and then gather together to discuss. Uh, but due to the printing press, friends of Luther interpreted uh, the 95 uh, Theses into German, and in a matter of two weeks, copies had been distributed all over Germany. When the Pope initially learned of this, he dismissed it as the musings 
of a drunken German monk who would soon sober up. In Luther's lectures from 1510 to 1520, he saw the church as being completely off course, especially in, in the matter of justification. As he studied the scripture, he saw that justification in the sight of God was entirely of God and not as a result of the work of the person. Justification is by faith alone and grace alone. Romans 1.17 was the key text that God used in Luther's life. Luther felt himself to have been genuinely born again. In 1520, he refused to recant his writings at the demand of Pope Leo X, again at the Diet of Worms in 1521. He refused to recant. He was communicated as a result and was pronounced an outlaw by the Holy Roman Emperor. So anyone was allowed to kill Luther without legal consequence. Anyone who helped him would also be guilty along with him. Frederick III of Saxony had Luther kidnapped on Luther's return to Germany. Frederick put Luther up in his Wartburg castle protecting him. Uh, Luther described the castle there as his Patmos. What's Patmos? Where John was exiled and wrote the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. This became for Luther a productive time of study and writing. Luther began studying more and more of the scripture from the Greek New Testament. And he could see how at key points the church's Latin translation had been off. Uh, such as the Latin translating repentance as doing penance. Keep in mind something about the Protestant Reformation. Other than various independent and offshoot groups that had pretty well always existed since the New Testament times and were generally seen as being false churches and often outright heretical groups, the church until the Protestant Reformation was the Catholic Church. Because of the hold the Roman Catholic Church held on all segments of society, the Protestant Reformation had an enormous, uh, had enormous cultural ramifications on all of society. The Protestant Reformation changed the world. Folks, that's no exaggeration. Uh, Luther brought the scriptures back into a place of prominence in the worship of the church. He also reinvigorated singing in the church. He married uh, Catherine, uh, one of 12 nuns. He helped uh, to escape a convict. He smuggled them out in fish barrels. Uh, he was marrying them all off. He couldn't seem to get Catherine married off, so he decided to marry her himself. Uh, before marrying, Luther had been living on the plainest food, and as he admitted himself, his mildewed bed was not properly made for months at a time. Luther and his wife moved into a former monastery. Uh, they embarked on what appears to have been a happy and successful marriage, though money was often short. Catherine bore six children. She helped the couple earn a living by farming and taking in boarders. Uh, Luther, uh, he treasured Katie. He truly did. 
And uh, Luther was pretty rough with his opponents. He was known as, he, he could cut like a knife with his tongue. Uh, but she kind of kept him in his place at home. <laughs> so anyway, I want us to watch about 45 minutes of this documentary, and I'll take talk more about some resources at the end that I would encourage you to get because, again, folks, uh, enormous impact on the world today, even, that Luther has had. Okay? So let's watch this. I thought this would be a treat. It would be very timely with tomorrow being what it is. Man, but he was a man 
subject to all of the frailties and faults that you and I are subject to. He was also an emotional man, a passionate man. He experienced everything from the most luminous highs all the way through to the deepest and darkest sorrows. Verbally, he could be vicious toward his enemies and also his friends. For example, against colleagues who disagreed with him on the theological significance of the Lord's Supper. And that's before we even get to the alleged anti-Semitism in his later years. And yet, this was the man, this was the man that God used to recapture the gospel. He restored the word of God, the Bible, to the center of Christian life and worship. He re-established the importance of family, the value of music, the dignity of human labor, but most significantly of all, he recovered the truth that a person's justification in the eyes of God comes by grace alone, through faith alone. Luther was, and still is, controversial, but the controversies hardly do the man justice. We need to get a sense of the world in which he lived. We need to grasp the cultural climate and the state of the church at that time in order to see Luther for who he really was and to understand what the legacy of the Reformation means for us. Once you begin to see what Luther did 500 years ago, you begin to see his fingerprints all around you today. as the man who caused the reformation of the church. But the real story is more nuanced. Luther was a huge driving force, of course, but the seeds of discontent had been sown long before he was born. By the time Luther came of age, organized Christianity bore little resemblance to its earliest days. The church had abandoned its prophetic voice and become a political force trusting not in God's wisdom, power and strength, 
but in its own. The finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary had been replaced with the ritual of the Mass, sacrificing the Lord anew whenever the congregation gathered. The people's hope was not in the righteousness of Christ alone, but instead in their ability to meet the commands of God. Deceivers and swindlers wandered the streets, peddling their false promise that as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. The Bible, written by and to the common man, had been snatched from his grasp, its contents known only to an elite few. This was a difficult age. In fact, the, the Reformation motto, post tenebras lust, after darkness light, tells us that just before the Reformation, this was a time of darkness. Uh, one of the ways I think we can see this darkness depicted is in, of all things, a painting. This is the Hay Wayne triptych. It was painted by Hieronymus Bosch. Bosch was a painter from the Netherlands. He died in 1516. And one of his last paintings was this painting. The triptych has three panels, and on the one side, Bosch depicts creation. And at the bottom of that panel, we have the fall and the expulsion from the garden. On the far panel, Bosch depicts judgment. And in that middle panel, the, the center panel, he depicts the moment. And in the center is this large, oversized hay bale, and right up against it are the nobility and the pope and the bishops. And they have access, as it were, to the hay bale. Then you sort of see the peasants and the masses of people, and they're painted in dark tones, and they're far off. It's as if they're unable to get access to the hay bale. In front of it, there's a monk, and he's sitting in a nicely appointed chair. He's being tended to by nuns, and he has everything he needs. And then on top of the hay bale, there's a solitary angel, and that angel is looking up. And that angel is looking to Christ. And there at the top of that center panel is Christ. And he's looking down, and it is Christ and all that he has to offer these folks, and they can't see him. They're not even looking up. It's not only that Christ was obscured at this moment in history, at this moment in the church's life, it's also that the people didn't even know what their true need was. Christ was so obscured, they thought their need were, was material, and material things would somehow satisfy that, and they don't even see their need for Christ. The priesthood had become very corrupt. Uh, immorality um, flooded the church, and they were literally the blind leaders of the blind, just as the Pharisees had been in the day of Christ. So the Church of Rome was in the day of the Reformation, the consolidation of power, haters of God pretending to shepherd his people. Was this what Christ intended for his church? And was it really true that Jesus' sacrificial death for sinners wasn't enough by itself to secure salvation? But the world in which Martin Luther grew up was a world of a ritual religion in which going to Mass was really the heart of the way in which I found favor with God. Uh, it was a little scary for most medieval Christians to actually receive the body and blood of the Lord. But in this magic moment when the, when the priest brought the presence of Christ right to our village, happened once in the week, just to be there was sufficient to, to earn God's grace.
The longer Luther lived with that system, the more burdensome it became, because it really put the burden on him. His, his instructors at the university had taught him that he had to do his best before God would give him the grace that would enable him to do the good works that really pleased God and made his way to heaven. And so it was as he turned ever more deeply into the scriptures, he found that the Christian religion is not a religion primarily of ritual, but it's primarily a religion in which we don't go to God first, but God comes to us first. And he comes as a God who likes to talk and who spoke, spoke the world into existence uh, in the beginning and who speaks a new person in Christ into existence through the forgiveness of sins. Well, the practice of selling indulgences emerges in the 15th century when the church ties together uh, its understanding of, of purgatory, this place between heaven and hell where most people go after they die in order to be purged of their remaining sin and made fit for heaven. When that doctrine was tied together with that of the treasury of merits, this, for want of a better term, heavenly bank account where all of the extra good works of the saints uh, have been deposited. What the church allowed for was the transfer of the good works from the treasury of merits, if you like, to the, the accounts of other people by payment of a certain amount of money and the provision of a certificate, a papal certificate, by the church. So by the time we get to the beginning of the 16th century, this is an established practice. It's a way of the church earning money. And in terms of how it impacts popular piety, clearly Luther perceived that this had led people to think they could more or less buy their way into heaven, that for a cash transaction you could have your sins dealt with in a way that bypassed the, the, the quality of the heart, bypassed the need for repentance. Indulgences represented hope for those who died and for those left behind, but it was a false hope, it was a lie designed to improve the church's bank balance. It built up cathedrals, but it was tearing down the souls of men and women across Germany and Europe. But there was yet another sin, a greater sin, that was staining the hands of the church. The scriptures themselves had been all but lost to the average parishioner, and this perhaps was the greatest tragedy of all. Well, every great movement in church history has been based upon the sole authority of Scripture. Uh, the Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement in reality. But preceding the Reformation, there were two leading lights in particular whom God used. That would be John Wycliffe and John Huss. Uh, John Wycliffe was an Oxford professor, the leading scholar of his day in England who lived in the 14th century. And he came back to the authority of Scripture, and at the end of his life, he actually translated the Bible into the English language from the Latin Vulgate. It was a step in the right direction. It would not be later until William Tyndale would do this work from the original Greek and Hebrew language. But John Wycliffe was known as the morning star of the Reformation. Uh, he was the first to appear on the horizon and brought uh, a portion of the church back to uh, the authority, the infallibility of the written word of God itself. 
John Huss was across the English Channel in Prague and in the next century, in the 15th century, and he, as a student at the University of Prague, began handwriting copies of Wycliffe's works as a way of earning money. And that was his initial exposure to the works of Wycliffe. And then through an exchange program between Oxford and the University of Prague, more of Wycliffe's writings came to that city in Europe. And uh, Huss actually devoured the teaching of Wycliffe, which was nothing more and nothing less than the straightforward interpretation of the Word of God. And so Huss was raised up in the city of Prague uh, as a powerful preacher uh, of the Word of God and, and really was the leading pre-reformer who would lead the way for a man named Martin Luther to come in the following century. There is a legend that John Huss, when he was being burned, declared, today you burn a goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise. Apparently, the, the word Huss in Czech uh, means goose. Luther knew of this legend and liked to think of himself as the fulfillment of Huss's prophecy, arising almost exactly a hundred years after Huss. And that is why today, in many Lutheran churches, the lectern from which the Bible is read is in the shape of a swan. Luther was the swan who fulfilled the prophecy of John Huss, the goose. Luther's uh, study in scripture paved the way for a new understanding or a fresh understanding of how the Bible is to be interpreted. But one of the big issues was his view of private interpretation. Let me just take a second to, uh, to quote the fourth session Again, the Council of Trent, where we have a statement in there where it says, to check unbridled spirits, it, that is the Council, decrees that no one, relying on his own judgment, shall in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, karma, distorting the Holy Scriptures in accordance with his own conceptions, presume to interpret them contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, to whom it belongs to judge of their true sense and interpretation, has held and holds. Now, what Luther advocated was called private interpretation. Now, he would agree with half of the statement. He didn't believe that any individual had the, ever had the right to distort the scriptures. With the privilege of interpreting the Bible for yourself, and also carried the responsibility of interpreting it accurately. But what he challenged was the unique sense in which the church claimed that it and it alone had the right to interpret the scripture. And as this uh, statement in, in Trent says, that it condemns anybody who presumes to interpret the scripture contrary to how it was done by Holy Mother Church. So those are just a few of the issues that have made a profound impact on the Christian church in history. Long before Luther was born, the fires of Reformation were already burning. There were already men and women in the church who knew something was wrong, who just knew that a church built upon earthly power and ritual wasn't what the apostles wanted, wasn't what the church fathers wanted, and it wasn't what God wanted either. The church needed to be renewed, it needed to be reformed. The light of the gospel had almost been extinguished. Almost.
when many of us think of Martin Luther, we think of the 95 Theses, the document that he nailed to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, his reaction to the corruption he saw in the church. Or we think of that famous, if disputed, phrase, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Or perhaps we think of the Luther insults generator online. Personal favorite of mine, you stink like devilish filth flung into Germany. It's pretty good. We know of him, but do we really know him? Do we really understand what made him tick? Well, for that, we need to head to Iceland in Germany, to the home of his father, Hans Luder. Born in Eisleben on November the 10th, 1483, Martin Luther grew up in a devout Roman Catholic home where he was raised under the strict disciplines of his parents' faith. His father, a stern and hard-working miner called Hans, wanted for his son a life outside the mines. He wanted him to become a lawyer. So Martin pursued his education in Eisenach and the University of Erfurt earning his bachelor's and master's degrees by 1505. Luther was an exceptional student with a formidable mind that thrived on study and analysis. But in July 1505, his studies were cut short when he was caught in a severe thunderstorm. Lightning struck nearby, throwing him to the ground. Fearing for his life and for his eternal salvation, he cried out to St. Anne, the patroness of miners, help me and I will become a monk. Luther was spared, and so the trajectory of his life was altered. Within weeks, and much to his father's dismay, Luther joined the strictest of monastic orders, the Augustinians. Uh, the Augustinian hermits were one of the preaching orders that originated in the 13th century. Uh, they were uh, gathered in cloisters and houses together, but they weren't supposed to stay there, restricted um, from the or set off from the world. But they were um, they were to go out to preach, to teach, to hear confessions, uh, to aid parish pastors, and so it was that world into which Luther uh, came. He wanted simply to scrub the floors in the monastery so that the brothers could go out and preach. Uh, but his superiors recognized very quickly he had a very good gift for language. He could uh, preach well. And he was very quickly the biblicus, uh, we might say the living concordance. He mastered scripture very early in his monastic career, even before he studied at the university. And so he was the perfect preacher uh, for a preaching order. By all accounts, Luther's days among prior to the Reformation were, we might say, angst-ridden to a significant degree. When he officiated at his first mass, when he was ordained as a priest and officiated at his first mass, he had some kind of breakdown at the altar, possibly because his father was there, his father didn't really approve of his religious calling, possibly because he was having to make God, and he considered himself to be very unrighteous. How could he, an unrighteous man, stand before a righteous God? How could he make God with his hands and touch God? And this is a theme throughout Luther's life, really, but particularly prior to his Reformation breakthrough to justification by grace through faith, Luther's burning concern was, how can I, as an unrighteous man, stand before a righteous God? And there are tales of him being in the confessional for hours on end, obsessing over every little sin, 
desperately seeking and desperately craving to find the assurance that God loved him and forgiven him his sin. So Luther's early days as a monk were marked by great fear of God, or great fear of what God might do to him because of his unrighteousness. During his time as a monk, Luther seemed unusually burdened by the demands of God's law, far beyond the burden felt by his peers. He was desperate to know that his righteousness was firmly secured, that he was truly saved. When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. For more than a decade, as Luther tortured himself, he sought out relief. He made his confessions, but they fell on deaf ears. He was even told not to bother doing it again until he'd done something worth confessing. Well, this blasé attitude toward personal holiness really troubled Luther, and his concern only deepened when he travelled to Rome as a representative of the Augustinian order. In 1510, he was selected along with one of his compatriots to make a visit to the holy city of Rome, which had enormous benefits from a pilgrimage and indulgence uh, viewpoint. So he was very excited to be selected for that trip. And he, when he went there, he was uh, extremely disillusioned by what he saw. He saw obvious evident corruption among the clergy involving themselves with prostitutes and all kinds of immorality, saw them selling the use of the mass and speaking at a rapid speed so that they could say as many masses as possible and make money. But the big experience came when he visited the Lateran Church, which had the sacred steps, where from the tradition was that uh, when the Crusaders went to Jerusalem, they, uh, found the steps were still there from where Jesus had risen to talk to Pontius Pilate and there they dismantled those sacred steps and brought them back and then reconstructed them in the church and the Lateran church there in Rome. And so this was a huge site of pilgrimage and value and relics where the view was that if you went up the stairs, I don't know how many stairs, 40-some stairs, on your knees, reciting the rosary while you were going, that had an enormous value of indulgences. And uh, so Luther made that, uh, that little journey on his knees up at the top of the stairs and it said that when he got to the top of the stairs, he stood up and said out loud, who knows if it is true. Returning from Rome, Luther poured himself into his studies, but as he grew in his understanding of the scriptures, he found it increasingly difficult to reconcile them with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. 
He burned with desire to understand the Bible, even as he was growing to hate the words contained within it. Throughout the early to mid-1510s, Luther's conflict grew. He saw God as a tyrant, demanding something which his unrighteous people simply could not give. Righteousness. Perfection. Luther did not love this God. He did not fear him. He hated him. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love. No, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled violently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the Gospel, and through the Gospel threaten us with His justice and His wrath? This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. This inner turmoil went on for years until finally, in an instant, Luther was overcome. He began to see the words of Romans chapter 1 verse 17 clearly as Paul meant them to be understood. That we are justified by faith alone, not by our works. And the gospel, hidden for so long, began suddenly to burn within him. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself, through open gates. Was this a born-again experience as we might understand it? We don't know, nor do we know exactly when it occurred, although Luther has indicated it was after the event which we most closely associate with him, the nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church on October 31st, 1517. Little did Luther realize that this call to repentance would reverberate around the entire world. The 95 Theses were written by Luther in Latin. And that's a key point, because when he attached them to the church door at Wittenberg, he wasn't doing violence to the church. That was the bulletin board where announcements were made and invitations were given to the faculty for academic discussions among themselves. And so what Luther was proposing was a serious scholarly discussion about the whole structure of the indulgence system. What happened without Luther's permission and without his knowledge, some students saw the, the 95 Theses, translated them into German, made it, took advantage of the printing press, and within two weeks, 
They were in every village and every hamlet throughout Germany, and this huge uproar took place. Well, Karl Barth makes the observation that Luther, when he posted the 95 Theses, was like a blind man climbing a tower in the church, in the bell tower, and he began to lose his balance, and he reached out to grab something to stabilize himself, and what he grabbed in his blindness was the rope for the church bell, and accidentally awakened the whole town by the ringing of the bells. The 95 Theses was really a protest against the selling of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church to raise money uh, to build larger buildings in Rome. And it was selling people a totally false hope that loved ones who have already died could be released from purgatory through the purchase of these indulgences. And when this message came to Martin Luther, that a man named Tetzel was going through Saxony and selling these indulgences, he was lit up with righteous indignation. And he could smell a rat from a long ways off. And Tetzel was that rat. And so Martin Luther wrote out 95 statements of affirmation and protest. He had no idea that he was striking the match that would light up Western civilization. And unknown to Luther, uh, a reformation was being birthed. Um, he simply wanted to have this discussion, but it found much attention uh, throughout the general area. And Martin Luther was now writing uh, a tsunami. He was writing a wave of controversy that would propel him forward to be the chief spokesman of the initial phase of the Reformation. There were uh, four printers who recognized that these 95 theses were dynamite. They printed them, and the world's not been the same since. In many ways, it was the beginnings of the modern world, the move from that medieval era into the modern age. We, we speak of the Renaissance, and we credit the Renaissance with this. There was something to that singular moment of the posting of the 95 Theses that not only changed church history, this changed world history for the centuries to come. And what was particularly radical in the 95 Theses was his criticism of the Pope who had extended the indulgences to the dead as well as to the living, which was a practice less than 50 years old in the life of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther, who had been really quite an unknown figure up till that point, suddenly became a famous figure, and people began to talk about the possibility that the church might be wrong on certain issues and that the church might need to be reformed on certain issues. Luther's fame spread at a remarkable rate. His courage in defying the men in power resonated particularly with those who had none. They took his works and reproduced them at such a rate that it was rare to meet a German who was unfamiliar with Luther's teaching. Before long, his works spread throughout the Holy Roman Empire and into the heart of the Vatican itself. A favorite response from the Catholic Church to Luther's posting of the 95 Theses was Pope Leo X's first response. When a copy of the Theses finally made its way to him down in the Vatican, Leo X quips, Ah, the railings of a drunken German monk He'll think differently when he sobers up. I think Leo X significantly underestimated what he was dealing with in this German monk. And on the one hand, Luther never sobered up. This was only the beginning 
of the challenge between Luther and his church. And from the posting of the 95 Theses till April of 1521 at Worms, there was one singular movement, and it ended with that decisive action of excommunicating Luther. But we need to remember what this means. This is a moment in time when to be outside of the church meant that you are outside of salvation. The church at this time believed that it held the keys to the kingdom. Literally, when Christ said to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that was taken as Christ giving up the keys of heaven to Peter. And then as Roman doctrine understands it through apostolic succession, Leo X was now the holder of the keys. And that decision to excommunicate Luther meant nothing short of saying, we are condemning you, we are saying that your soul is damned to hell. That was the result of the 95 Theses. That's how the church fundamentally responded to Luther. How did Luther respond? Well, you're not the true church. You've abandoned your calling as the church. The true church is the church that preaches the word of God, that preaches the gospel. And the true church is the church that exercises the sacraments aright and according to the word of God. In November 1518, Luther was summoned to Augsburg to appear before an assembly and defend his thesis. Three days of debates proved fruitless. Cardinal Thomas Cajetan continued to defend the practice of issuing and selling indulgences. Luther refused to recant and return to Wittenberg. But the controversy didn't end there. Luther continued to write, publish, and teach, formulating and clarifying the doctrines which would become the foundation for the Reformation. Papal commissions studied his works and declared them heretical. Pope Leo X declared him a heretic and excommunicated him in early 1521. And then, at the Diet of Worms, Luther was called to defend himself once again. Uh, the Diet of Worms is uh, a very important event in the life of Luther, in the uh, progress of the Reformation. And uh, the Diet, of course, was a regular meeting of uh, princes both ecclesiastical and uh, secular from the life of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the Diet was roughly like the Parliament in uh, Britain. But at this particular Diet meeting in the city of Worms in, in April of 1521, uh, another issue on the docket was the issue of uh, Martin Luther, the, the monk. Rome had to have Luther recant because he actually had challenged the very basis of this medieval system. By 1521, when he was actually excommunicated, he had attacked this, this ritual system uh, upon which medieval piety was based and said, it is God's word that comes to us and not our performance of, uh, of the rituals of the church through the priests, through the hierarchy uh, that, that gives us access to God. So that, that was a major challenge to the entire edifice of, of medieval Christianity. And equally important, or perhaps more important, was his challenge to papal authority. He had, had said that the Pope rules Western Christendom 
not by divine right, uh, but as a result of human agreement. So Luther arrives in the city, and uh, here are major players. There's the emperor himself, of course. There are uh, the great secular princes. There are all sorts of ecclesiastical princes. There's the representative of the pope. And uh, the elector Frederick, of course, is there. And Luther arrives. Uh, what set the meeting off to a somewhat bad beginning in certain ways is that uh, Luther had larger crowds and larger cheering when he entered the city than had greeted the emperor. This somewhat annoyed the emperor. Uh, but on the day of the first meeting, they gathered in what we today would consider a relatively small room because, uh, after all, it was a very limited number of people that were ever allowed in the presence of the emperor. And uh, uh, Luther was put on trial uh, because the church had already declared him uh, a heretic and uh, insisted then that there should be civil penalties along with ecclesiastical penalties for that heresy. And uh, Luther went into it with a measure of fear and trembling, uh, knowing how serious it was when he walked into the uh, audience chamber before the emperor, the Spanish guards at the door uh, muttered to him, to the flames, to the flames. So everybody knew what was at stake here. He, he enters in, and there are his books, a number of books by this time, piled on a table, and uh, uh, the representative of the emperor points to the books and says, are these your books? And, and Luther says, yes, they are. And he says, will you now recant of the errors in them? Well, Luther was distressed because he really was looking forward to the possibility of defending his views. So trying to buy time, he says, uh, well, um, will you give me a list of the errors in my books that I'm to recant on? Well, they were ready for that. They knew he was clever, and they weren't going to get into a debate with him what were and what weren't errors. So they said, well, you're a professor of theology. You know what your errors are, and you must recant them. And um, Luther then made the less famous speech at Worms where he said, can I have 24 hours to think it over? And um, uh, they granted him time to do that. Now, uh, why did he want that time? Well, I think it's a, it's a very important window into Luther's mind and heart and soul. Uh, he knew how serious this was. And he knew, as his critics had said to him, that he before God would have to answer the question, are you alone wise? And for a medieval man, this was a very troubling question. They were not rugged individualists. They really believed in community. And, and Luther wrestled in prayer with that question, am I the only one who's wise? And what his conclusion was, I am not doing this because I think I'm wise. Uh, I am doing this because I'm driven to it by the Word of God. Um, I feel this is the only way I can read the Word, word of God or that anyone could read he was put under enormous pressure, but Luther wouldn't be swayed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. This I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Luther didn't begin his work with the intention of dividing the Catholic Church. He was simply calling it to repent. 
specifically to repent of the use of indulgences as a means of securing salvation. He was challenging the abuse of authority within the church, not trying to create a new one. How would history look now if the Pope had listened to Luther's call to repent at this point? Would a Protestant movement still exist if it had nothing to protest? Declared a heretic by Leo X and vilified by Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, Luther went into hiding in Eisenach. And although he might not have said those famous words, here I stand, this much is clear. In exile, Luther never wavered. In fact, he became even more bold. He wrote and taught and reformulated his doctrines with indefatigable zeal. He began to translate the New Testament into German so that everyday folks could have the Bible in their own language for the very first time. Here in exile, his desire for moral reformation morphed into the desire for a complete transformation, the establishment of a new church, one which was modeled after the church visible in the New Testament. Luther's understanding of the church does develop somewhat over time during the Reformation, but in terms of his mature understanding, central to his thinking is the proclamation of the word. Now, the minister is the man, the priest is the man who proclaims the word. And the word is not simply for Luther an explanation of the Bible. The word is God speaking to the people. The word comes in a powerful and transformative way. It either loosens people, if they grasp it by faith, frees them, or it binds them if they meet it with unbelief. In terms of the congregation, I think Luther expected the congregation to receive the word with faith. You would go to church to hear the word read in your language, to hear the word proclaimed in your language, and that's an active thing. Often we tend to think of congregants as sitting there passively while the person in front preaches. For Luther, listening was active because listening had to be by faith. So when the word was proclaimed, the congregation were to actively receive that word. When his hairdresser, Peter the Barber, is struggling with his prayer life, one of Luther's bits of advice is go to church, hear the word preached, hear the psalms being sung. And for Luther, that would help Peter with prayer because Peter's not just sitting there passively receiving this stuff, he's supposed to be grasping it by faith, and as he grasps it by faith, so the Lord will transform him. I think Luther was committed, theoretically, to the notion that the Bible taught a rather congregationalist uh, polity and that uh, worship services would be quite simple and um, uh, with a, a fair level of congregational involvement in those worship services. Uh, but Luther also recognized that the external form of the church was for him a relative matter of indifference and that in the world in which he lived, uh, those decisions would be made not by ministers or theologians, but would be made by princes. So the princes ended up making decisions about who would be ministers, where they would serve, and how the uh, liturgy of the church would remain fairly conservative. Luther understood that all believers, regardless of education, economic status, or social standing, were invaluable members of the body of Christ. All believers are priests, for the kingdom of God is a kingdom of priests. And these priests were not under the authority of a pope, they were under the authority 
of God. The word of God, especially as anchored in scripture and in the authority of scripture, was key to Luther's entire call for reform. And so the sermon, he says in 1526 in his work on the German liturgy, his, the, the sermon was now the, the center. The Lord's Supper, celebration of the Lord's Supper was very important. Um, and, and absolution was key to the Christian life as well, daily repentance. But the, the sermon, the delivery of the Word of God, the hearing of Scripture uh, for a population that was 85 to 90% illiterate, that, that, was, that was the heart of the matter. Why would a church want to keep Scripture from the people. Well, of course, the answer is obvious. Because then you're dependent on the church. You need to rely on what the church says. And it becomes a way for the church to keep the power over the people. The other reason that we see here is that some of the doctrines, really crucial doctrines of the Middle Ages, were based on a bad translation. In fact, we see this in the very first of the 95 Theses. After Luther wrote the 95 Theses, he wrote another text called Explanations of the 95 Theses. And those are paragraph expansions on each of the 95 Theses, which are more or less single sentences. And in the first expansion of the first thesis, in that text, the explanation of the 95 Theses, Luther references the Greek text and the Greek word for repent. Of course, the Greek word for repent is the word metanoia. We get from this the idea of a change of mind. So you do a 180 is the idea of a repentance. This is how the Latin Vulgate translated that Greek word. It translated it as penitentium agate. And what that is best translated or directly translated as is do penance. Well, there's a world of difference between do penance and the intention behind the Greek word metanoia. And Luther saw it. Remember, it was just in 1516 that we have the publication of the Greek text through the scholar Erasmus's work at the town of Basel. And one of those copies made its way into Luther's hands. And there's no accident here of history. Luther is reading the Greek text in 1516, and a year later he's posting the 95 Theses. It was so scandalous because in the day of the Reformation, in the centuries preceding, the church stood in a posture of authority over the Bible. Uh, the Pope became the chief interpreter of the Bible. And what was so scandalous about the Reformation is that the Reformers, chief of whom was Luther, asserted that the Bible is over the church that the Bible commands and directs the church, not the other way around. So that's what really was the heart of the Reformation. It was a crisis of authority in the church. And no longer now would human tradition and ecclesiastical councils, and even the Pope himself, be the authority in the church. The highest arbitrator in the church would now be, thus says the Lord, as it was recorded in the canon of written scripture. The purpose of preaching was to convict people of their sin by proclaiming the law to pointing them to the righteous God to their own unworthiness and meet the demands of the law. And then to offer the people Christ. To command them to do something they can't do. And then to point them to Christ, the one who has done it for them. First and foremost, he had a fire in his bones. 
And it came out in the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. Uh, the kind of preacher that he was, he was a straightforward Bible preacher. There's a famous painting of Luke, by Lucas Cranach, the elder, of Luther preaching. And there's his family on one side, and Luther's in the pulpit on the other side, and his hands on the Bible, and his arm is outstretched, pointing to a crucifix, the crucified Christ. So that sums up beautifully. One great resource I would encourage you to get is this biography on Luther uh, by Eric Metaxas. Uh, you may have seen one several years back that he also did on uh, Bonhoeffer. But uh, that'd be a great resource. Amazon.com and order it. Uh, some observations in closing. Uh, you see what happens in the church when the church veers away from the scripture being our authority. When the church moves away from the scripture being our authority, then it invites anything and everything in, right? Something disturbing about all this for today. Think if you're living back then and you don't have the word of God, you don't read, and even if you do, you don't have a copy of the scripture in your language. And so the scripture is locked away from you. Unless you go to a church and hear what the priest at that time told you that it said, you don't have exposure to it. Now here's the tragedy in that. Today, even in evangelical life in America, maybe you've seen polls recently, all of us have three, four, five, six, ten, twelve copies of the scripture in our home. And when you come to church, based on LifeWay surveys recently, when you come to church on a typical Sunday morning and you look around the sanctuary, very few people in that church actually read the Bible. What are we doing today by our own choice? We're doing by our own choice what was forced upon the people before the time of the Reformation. They didn't have the scripture and they couldn't do anything about it. We have it and we don't read it. Is that not the greater tragedy in some ways? That's sad. Another observation before I close in prayer. Uh, this shows you the difference that one person can make. Do you think of a woman in the Old Testament? Esther. The difference of one. 
Think of how God used one. When he started reading the scripture for himself and saying, this is not at all what the church is teaching. And he had courage enough to confront it. Today, we're beneficiaries of that. Right? The difference of one. So again, that's, that's some of the things I get out of this. Um, when we get away from the authority of Scripture, how we will embrace anything. The tragedy of not knowing the Scripture and reading it for ourselves. And then the difference that one can make. I want you to think about that. Now again, you can finish watching this. You can go on YouTube and Google it. Uh, Ligonier, L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R. Ligonier Ministries. And it's a new documentary out. As I say, it's an hour and 32 minutes long. You've seen about 45 minutes of it. And the, the public TV DVD Jeff, did you just go online with public TV? Oh, yeah. You, just, you can Google probably the name okay. of Martin Luther or PBS. Okay. And people may actually get the little uh, pamphlet okay. with, with the different movies that they have. Okay. If you're a member of PBS. Now, the good thing about that one is it, it is a movie with actors and so forth. So you'll, you'll enjoy that about... It has some documentary aspects to it as well, but it, it's a, it's a there, There's actually plus narration, uh, like you have a lot of folks here that narrated this. There's a, a narrator also. But right. There, there is some act. There is act. Okay, good. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the life of somebody like Martin Luther and how you used him to spark the fire of the Protestant Reformation. And Lord, how that changed the course of the church and really of, of Western civilization today. So we thank you that here was a man who stood in the gap and he was willing to lay down his life if that's what it took. Lord, it's certainly a testimony to us today about the men and women of faith that you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you for the power of the word that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I pray that the word would always be central in our churches. And Lord, that it would be central in our lives. That we would take it up and read. And Lord, that we would not do by choice what was forced upon people 500 years ago. We pray these things in Jesus' name.